We are in a series, which we started last week on uh, one anothering soul care in the body of Christ. And what we're going towards is to look in a foundational way last week and this week at the passages of scripture that talk about, well, one anothering. And, uh, and so last week we had a, a good start, um, lengthened a little bit because I had a wonderful report overexcited report to get from Burundi, and I was glad of your interest in it too, and, and your support. So thank you again for all those. We gave out a, a handout, a high quality resolution, I think there's one left on the table in there, copy of this, uh, this slide, and it uh, encompasses or graphically displays the over 40 references to one another in the New Testament. And uh, they're balloons, and of course the biggest balloon actually doesn't even fit on the page. It's the red one in behind, and it's love one another. Uh, just as I have loved you, so Jesus is both motive and model, that the love of God is poured out in our heart, Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God constrains us, Paul says to the, to the Corinthians. And uh, so love is the call. Love is the law of Christ. So love one another is the biggest one of all, and hopefully on the copy, if you received one last week, uh, you can actually see the references there. Now, these are balloons, and the logic of the balloons is the larger the balloons, the more often that is stated in the New Testament. So last week, we took a look at this and said, well, okay, what is the second biggest balloon? And if you can read English, you know what it is there and have a sense of size. If not, we have a doctor that can help you. Don't, uh, no, you know what I mean. Uh, encourage, right? Uh, next biggest one is? Greet. Greet. I, I hope you found that interesting. I did. And I was tempted last week. I said, yeah, somebody's got to do a whole message or a sharing time message on, on greet. I think somebody actually shared that with me last week. Anyway, I'll look forward to it. Uh, be humble. And as you look through these 40, uh, you see a combination, as I stated here, of uh, outward actions, imperatives, but inward attitudes. And, and they're related to one another. All that we have called to be inwardly and do outwardly, Jesus is and does for us. So I, I tossed out, not very clearly, a little assignment if you want to do it. Number one, uh, anybody want to count these up? Now, there's over, over 40 overall, but there's not 40 balloons, if you know what I mean, okay? Uh, how many and what proportion just generally were in, inward graces and outward imperatives? Anybody do the math there? Guess? All but one, right? Hmm? All were, did you say all were outward? Uh, no, they're a combination inward, like be humble, okay, uh, be kind. Many of those on the bottom were all fruit of the Spirit, which I think somebody like you preached about a couple little while, little while ago, right? Uh, so let me just go back up there. So many of these down at the bottom have the mind of Christ. Uh, that's you have it. And you speak the encouragement and the greeting out of the mind of Christ, right? You see what I mean by inward to outward? So it's a very interesting combination. I kind of lost count last night, and I, I won't even give a proportion, but it's, it's kind of roughly split, if you would agree. Uh, the other thing I asked was, okay, I want you to think about how the inward are vital to doing the outward. If you greet, and you're not humble, or if you're not kind, 
if you don't have the mind of Christ, what are you doing that the world doesn't do? Right? Right? So the inward's got to precede the outward. So Christ changes your heart and you move outwardly. In the body that Jesus has put you in, you one another in that body. Last one, are there any in there that you could see don't involve words? Well, they'll probably all involve words, but uh, you can't possibly think of doing them without a word. Anybody find one? Somebody emailed me, they said, and now they skipped out. They're not going to say, so I won't embarrass that person. But my wife found one, and she's not here to defend herself. She's up in New York at her mother. Many of you met her mother. She has her 90th birthday this week. So, By the way, she misses you. Uh, she's never been able to find a good fellowship up in New York, and she left here and said, wow, you know, it's wonderful here. And we're going like, you know, why is this the exception? It should be the rule in all one anothering and all, all people here. Well, she found one. And would it surprise you? She found hospitality. Uh, show hospitality. It almost always includes words, but not necessarily. Right? I think that's the only one that's there. Why is because towards the end here, we're going to talk about one anothering and all of life is counsel. So you know, it involves words. So that's a quick, quick review. Uh, and we're going to continue. And if you're looking at the second page there, we're going to look at six basic foundational uh, pillars, if you will, that characterize biblical soul care. And when we've talked about uh, uh, things in the past, when I've had the opportunity to share with you, I've kind of made a distinction between uh, the Bible teaching you and then the Bible showing you. So it tells you what to do and then gives you an example of what it looks like. And this time, I'm kind of flipping them around. I'm going to give you the show first because the showing is most wonderful, and I can't think of leaving that to the end. Biblical soul care is caring like Jesus. Um, he aims to reveal our wavered hearts. And the examples that I, were, I was able to teach over the last couple of months, uh, we unpacked two stories, if you will. You know, the disciples in the boat, uh, absolutely frozen by fear. The dinner party gone crazy with Martha. You know those two stories. In both situations, I depicted Jesus as rolling up his sleeve and going to work to humble people whose heart he knew. And, and if we, we kind of think through, how did Jesus approach them? How did he want another people who are, are, are captured by or frozen in fear by important things, and he wants to correct them, but lovingly so, the rebuke in both situations might have stung. But Jesus does so in such a way as that we can model his love that he wants to reveal our wayward hearts, but simultaneously, not to crush us, but to reveal his all-sufficiency and his all-importance as gracious Savior and ruling Lord. So as to lead us to a joyful obedience away from the lure of worthless suitors and futile places of refuge, having tasted, as Peter says, that the Lord is good. Remember, rolling up his sleeve. And so Jesus calls us to imitate him, to follow him. More on that in a moment. Uh, is sin still in a per per personal front to the holy God, to Jesus? Yes, it is. 
Yet it is through the cross that we both see and feel the horror of sin, for there the measure of the wrath of God is is beheld by our own eyes, and see and delight in the mercy and grace offered, for there the measure of his love is demonstrated. In Christ we have no condemnation, Romans 8.1. And the gospel assurance of a clean conscience when we do sin, because Jesus can and does clear our conscience, Hebrews 9.14. Jesus disciplines all he loves, and that may sting, but the cure is so much sweeter. Jesus never beats up his children. Now, you may say, that's a strange thing. If if there's ever a phrase I've repeated in counseling over and over and over again, when people in front of me think, uh, what is Jesus doing? It hurts. It's bad. And I simply say, he's loving you, and I want you to prove it. (laughs) Well, they often say that to me. But what he doesn't do is he does not uh, harm his children. It may hurt, and there's a difference between the two. This leads to a joy-based repentance. A fear-based repentance, on the other hand, makes us hate ourselves. Why did I do that again? But Jesus never strangles you like that. He never does. But a joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. Just look at these texts, if you will, sometime. Jeremiah 2.13, Acts 3, 19-20, 2 Corinthians 7.8. You don't have fear and groveling, but you have joy. The sting of rebuke, the sting of rebuke may be there, but the sweetness and joy is the lingering taste and satisfaction. Second part, caring like Jesus is bringing the drifting brother or sister when we want another, another believer or sister, um, to the real source of contentedness, restoring them back to gospel joy. That's the wonderful line of Psalm uh, 51.12, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Gospel joy convinces us of a greater satisfaction in Christ than all that tempts us away from Christ. Sin, according to Romans 1, is a worship disorder. It's what you treasure. It's who you believe. And Jesus wants to open your eyes to his all-sufficiency, his all-importance. He wants you to be convinced that what he tells you is what you should hang your heart upon. So even if I bring back the Mark 4, Luke 8 story of the the, the apostles on the boat who feel that within 20 seconds they're all going to be dead, and they shake Jesus, and they say, don't you realize we're going to die? And he turns the thing around and says, your faith, where's your faith? You know, faith is more important than your life. And I quoted at that time John Piper saying, sometimes the Lord brings you into trials on earth and brings you out safely only in heaven. But safe you are. So there's three uh, further texts that I'd like people to read here. I gave out Psalm 4, 6 through 7. Uh, if, If you could read that. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when they're great and wine about. Yeah. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And John 15, 10 through 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The very next chapter, by the way, is a wonderful chapter. I think more references to joy in John 16 than any other chapter of the Bible. You know, nothing can take away your sin. That's joy. Uh, uh, It's just a wonderful chapter. And it was given in this last teaching to his disciples. Isn't that amazing? The great theme of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to the cross and, and, and the writer to the Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured. And so the, the, the day and night and so forth, just before that, his entire theme is joy. Isn't that great? Jesus is the real joy giver. Sin and bad theology are the real joy robbers. I hope you would mind. I, I'm going to read this quote out loud. Um, I, I just love giving this to people because it kind of makes the same point. I don't know if you know Sam Storms. That his book, One Thing, has a wonderful summary of this very important, important point. It is a dreary holiness, indeed, that is merely resisting sin. The joy of holiness is found in having heard a sweeter voice, sweeter song. This is the true meaning of grace. Grace doesn't demonize our desires or destroy them or nor lead us to deny them. Grace is the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming our desires so that knowing Jesus becomes sweeter than illicit sex, sweeter than money and what money can buy, sweeter than every fruitless joy. Grace is satisfying our souls with his son so that we're ruined for anything else. Questions? Anything up to now? Well, uh, one last thing about caring like Jesus, and we could just go all day with this. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine is this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You hear those three words? Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the best sellers over the last couple of years, if I could recommend, uh, here is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Just a wonderful book. Uh, my wife and I took forever to go through reading it together in our devotion together. Uh, it is just wonderful. If, it, if you can get through some of the chapters without choking up, it's a wonderful text unpacking exactly how Jesus is gentle and lowly. So learn of him. Learn of him as he cares for you. That's the way you are to care for each other. Well, the second one is... Biblical soul care is caring like the apostles. And again, I'll just remind you, I'm giving you the two examples here because not Jesus not only asks you to imitate him, learn of him, but the apostles do this as well. well Paul, for example, writes to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9, imitate us, imitate us, what you see in me, do, 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 do the same. And uh, so there's an imitation to those who the Lord has gifted the church. Biblical soul care is caring like the apostles. 
What I like to ask people at this moment, what New Testament book is a short letter to an individual concerning a, what we would call a counseling issue? Do you know the book? It's written to one person? Yes. Philemon. Philemon, exactly. And it's a wonderful book. If you've not read it recently in your Bible reading, read it again. That kind of step three, and I'm going to fill in step one and two that we know happen. And so I'm not making up any history here. But what happened before the letter? Number one, you had a man named, a runaway slave by the name of? Onesimus, right. Okay. Uh, Onesimus ran away. We think he probably stole from his master, whose name was? Philemon, right. Okay. So he runs to another city, finds himself under the preaching of Paul, and he becomes a Christian. Isn't that fabulous? And isn't that wonderful? And he's sitting there, you know, Roman villa, whatever, right? Right, right. So, you know, it's hot, and, you know, they're warning people not to be in the window because people tend to fall out, and, you know. <laughs> So, so he's probably not in the window, okay? He's somewhere up there. Paul is preaching gospel connections. Gospel connections that say, Jesus did the great work of making you God's friend when you were his enemy. And now what were you going to do with your brother and sister who just kind of annoys you? Like, right, you know, he's making gospel connections. You know he did. You don't know how many weeks it took, how many months it took, but you know the day came when the spirit enlightened Onesimus didn't realize Jesus would have me go back. Yes. Number two that had to have happened before Philemon, the book, is written. Okay? Onesimus had to talk to Paul. Now, what grieves many of us, I've shared with you how I've done theological education, Uganda, uh, Haiti, here and there, and all over the place. And what really, really grieves me, and not a whole lot grieves me, because I've seen most sinful things that Christians do. But what really grieves me, when I start a class, and at the end of the class, after it's being translated in Serbian or French or whatever, some dear soul comes up to me and says, they might not think you heard what I was saying, but we're laughing at the back thinking, why are we studying counseling? I just want to be a preacher. Now, that's a sad story. Onesimus here had a gospel relationship with Paul. He was likely afraid. And you know what happened one day is he probably came to Paul said afterwards, you know, when they're going to the kitchen, you know, and stuff, and said, Paul, well, you know who I am. Yeah, I do. I ran away. Yeah, 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 okay. I've got to go back. Yeah, I'm scared. I can't go. So, again, something like that happened, but you know that this gospel connection was made in the preaching and teaching, and you know that they had a gospel relationship because Paul would have never read the, written the letter if Onesimus hadn't talked to him, Right? And then the letter. Gracious, wonderful letter in which you bring this redeemed sinner and this redeemed sinner to realize that they have both one master and one savior. And so, you see here the the picture? If you think it through what happened, you have ministry of caring like the apostles. So I have three things here. Gospel connections, gospel relationships, and doing biblical soul care, whether it's one another over a table, one another at your home, over the phone, whatever. It's putting Jesus' truth in application.
rolling up your sleeves, if you will, and being willing to be the one who brings truth to bear and Jesus glorified. So, again, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9, imitate us. So, an encouragement there. Okay, that's the two examples, but let's look at 3, 4, 5, 6. Here we go. Number one, three, biblical soul care aims for gospel transformation. One of the great movements in biblical counseling over the last, oh my, it's 55 years since a guy named Jay Adams wrote a wonderful book called Competent to Counsel. He was at Westminster Seminary. And uh, in 1970, he wrote this book. And if you were alive and, and, and kicking in the evangelical church back then, you realize that virtually nobody did counseling. If you had fear, if you had anger issues, you just went to a psychologist, psychiatrist. You know, you got whatever drug that they got at the time. But yeah, that just goes outside of the church. We'll just deal in the church with, with spiritual issues like, well, getting saved. Okay? That's about it. Okay? But anything else is off the charts. No, no, and no. And even when we start to recognize that sin is often behind these things, the goal is not simply to manage anger. Somebody who I had the joy of having in my class in December in Serbia, she's a, uh, uh, she's a translator. She wasn't a student of mine, but she sat in the last day because she was intrigued. She has a, a couple of masters in psychology. She's been writing on Facebook like, Okay, okay, when I get annoyed with people, I read Ellis, and he tells me to just, like, put it behind me and swallow hard and do these breathing exercises and so forth, and so I can walk right by that person, and, and well, you know, she as a Christian probably says, well, I'm not going to sin, so isn't that good? No, it's not. Not enough. It's not enough. Jesus would have you love in such a way that you move towards that person in love, attitudinal forgiveness, and actually say words that benefit them, either to bring them along to salvation or grow them as a Christian. That blows her mind. Like, that can't be in the Bible. Yes, well, it is, and that's what Jesus' will is. I have four cards to read here. Ephesians 4, 13. Somebody have Ephesians 4, 13? Yes, thanks. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is being a view of the goal, ultimately, that one another have. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Yeah. So you see the center of the teaching is him. We proclaim him, and he is also the goal. Did you see both of those things in that verse? Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am in anguish, I am again in anguish, in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Yeah. Christ formed in you is another wonderful picture. Okay? Having the mind of Christ, having the heart of Christ, Christ formed in you. And that forming is very much like the word that, you know, we love from Psalm 139, being formed in my mother's womb, right? It's that formation of Christ in us. Ephesians 1, 16 through 19. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us to believe. I love that prayer. It's one of two great, wonderful prayers at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Uh, great, great prayers. I love this one because it's a wonderful uh, three-point saying that your eyes of your heart are open. So ultimately, we, we share things about Christ, but it's a supernatural work of the Spirit that only can open the heart, eyes of the heart, to see who, the riches of the hope to which we were called, the immeasurably wonderful inheritance that we are. We are his inheritance. And the last one, you can take it two different ways. I think it's the inheritance you have. I take it the other way. It's the inheritance that we are. Uh, but both are true because there's both taught in the scripture. And the last one is the immeasurably great power for us to believe. Um, we need strength. More about that in a few minutes here. So we're not simply out to manage sin. Some of the early biblical counseling people, and I just love Jay Adams. I really do. I think I've read everything that he wrote. I love the man. He loves the gospel. He loves Jesus. But he wasn't always consistent. Uh, one time in his book, he says, oh, when do you stop counseling or encouraging or, or coming alongside uh, a drifting brother or sister? And his answer was, when you're pretty convinced they won't sin that way again. Well, I, I take a little exception with that, you know. No, it, there's a corresponding grace to each sin. We'll talk about that in the future. But this is the one of the things that we're talking about. We're not simply managing sin, but bringing a person to the joy that we read earlier, okay, earlier, that captures their heart and sets them on a course of pleasing him because they are pleased with him. Do you see that? And that's where you want to leave a person that you're counseling. We have this jar, uh, treasure in jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So talking about power, we need it. It's the Holy Spirit that can only accomplish it. We are wonderful instruments in his hands, yet we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, 2 Corinthians 4. Seven. Any questions so far? I've thrown one of these in every second slide, so if you got the idea, okay. Anything, comment, any other text that you'd like to add to it, even? Uh, yeah, just God, God wants to change our affections. That's kind of summing up some of what you were saying. There's, we want to get rid of the sin, but we've got to put something, we, we have faith with this particular sin, we want to give us affection for, for Christ. Right. We'll be repeating these things. One nice thing about uh, six pillars, if you will, the six you'll keep hearing over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I mentioned many weeks ago, and one of the things I shared, the expulsive power of a new affection. Wonderful sermon by uh, an old saint that the only thing that pu pu pushes out the affection that you have and the, the disbelief that you think that greater joy is found in an earthly created thing is the eyes open to the greater satisfaction in Christ. Well, we're going to move then. There's no other comments or questions. Okay, breathe deeply. We're on a downhill track, four, five, and six. Here we go. Biblical self-care is characterized by two words. And uh, the two words are, uh, ready for a little Greek here, parakleo and nuseo. 
Now, uh, the interesting one is the first one, parakaleo. So I have here a parakaletic focus to comfort or encourage. Remember back in the balloons, what was the second biggest one? Encourage, right? That's the word here. And the key text here is Romans 15.4. Now, the interesting thing about Jay Adams, and again, uh, you remember, I said I love the man. He starts his book in 1970, and I was around and reading then. I was in Bible college, and I thought this book was absolutely fabulous. And you open up, and he runs right to Romans 15, but verse 14, where Nuseo is. And he says, this is what the church has to recover. Well, it not only has to recover Nuseo, which I'll get to on the next slide, but this one, parakaleo. Now, take a look at the word there. Do you, you think you know what some of the parts mean? Para, we get the English word parallel from that, right? Another New Testament word, paraclete, refers to who? The Holy Spirit, right? Uh, so this word literally means to draw near or call near, or call beside. Isn't that interesting? The key text here, there's 16 references overall in the letter of uh, Romans, so if you miss Pericoleo, I don't know what you're reading. You're certainly not reading the book of Romans. Um, here, uh, the very first and wonderful text I gave to somebody here, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Parson Brown, is that the one you have? Yes, sir. Okay, if you could read that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which our, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we too share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope, is, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. How many times did he say comfort? Right? Yeah, so that's it. And who is he writing to? He talks about the God of all comfort. Don't miss that. Who comforts you in all so that you can comfort others in any. Isn't that an amazing statement? Right? You actually are able to participate with the God of all comfort in giving away that comfort that you have had to others. That's a joy. It's an obligation. But a joyful duty, not an obnoxious duty. Learn from me, Jesus says, right? Um, if you look through the scriptures, and I have several on the text there, we won't read them all, the settings, if there is a sinful uh, uh, Christian uh, wrestling going on, if you read these texts, what is the context of the encouragement that you're called to give? Number one, 2 Corinthians, well, Ephesians 6.22, to strengthen a person's hope. They're wavering. They're, they're in a trial. 1 Peter 2.11, growth in Christian maturity. Growth in Christian maturity. Philippians 4.2, that's the passage where the two women are bickering, right? You had this a couple months ago when we were going through Philippians. These two women, uh, it's usually translated entreat. 
and it's parakaleo. And treat these two women, right? Striving for like-mindedness is the issue there, and unity. 2 Corinthians 5.20, the need for reconciliation. Basically, there's other, two other words that are often connected when you look through these verses on parakaleo. They are to strengthen and to establish. You get that idea there? Yeah. It's a wonderful set of verses, and they're almost always connected to you. A paracolactic focus on the counseling is usually one where they're suffering. They're suffering, or they're tempted in that suffering to drift away from Christ. They're tempted to find refuge somewhere else that won't help and can lead way down the line, away from Christ, away from his people, away from his word, away from his people. Uh, suffering is often the context here that needs strengthened faith and established faith. Well, the second ver verb is the one that J. Adams wrote so eloquently of that the church had long lost for about 200 years, and that is nuseo. And nuseo means literally to put in mind. Put in mind. Now, it's got the most wide semantic range. What in the world do I mean by semantic range? Well, let me just give you a parental experience. How many here is a parent or have been a child? <laughs> okay, you, you either fit one or the other, right? So there you go, okay? So when little Johnny or whenever, who, whoever, you know, does the infraction the first time and sneaks around and thinks they got the hand in the jar, you know, okay? Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. So what's the first thing? I admonish you, right? Kind of the weakest word that is translated. It's an admonishment. Listen, mommy, daddy loves you, and you will get sick in your belly if you eat too many of those cookies. They belong after the meal, not before the meal. Trust me, you'll be happier longer. Okay, that's an admonishment, okay? Well, they catch them the next day, right? So now it kind of up the level, right, to, to warning. Okay, we won't say anything more about that. Then correction. Like that usually involves a tool somewhere or, you know, grounding or something like that. The final one is reproof or rebuke. That's upper end. And so as you look through uh, Nuseo in the New Testament, it has that range uh, between small and large. There's one text here, which I didn't give out a card, but I'll read it right now. Colossians 3.16. Uh, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Isn't that wonderful? So you take it in, and then you give it out as you one another, one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that word there is nutheo. Now, the interesting thing in Colossians 3 is there's no sin involved there. So they basically translate it with the mildest verb, word, admonish. And so uh, you don't want to have a hard and fast rule, but if you look at all the texts of Parakaleo and all the texts of Nusao, you basically get a pattern that Parakaleo is you come alongside because they're suffering and they're tempted and they're tried and they're oh, having a hard time in life, right? And the other one is they slipped and they're falling and they're need of Correction. You, you need to stand in the way and love them in Christ. Two focus uh, temptations. Often then when you sit down with somebody, 
where do they need the encouragement? My daughter once called, I, I have three daughters, so I'll just say one time, uh, she's had many of these courses, she read all this stuff, and uh, she just said, oh, Dad, it's just so hard. And all I had to say is, like, I just quoted one verse from Jeremiah 17 about just dig your roots closer to the stream. She said, yeah, you know, thank me the next day. And sometimes you just simply have to put that admonishment back in words to them. Uh, I love Titus 2.15. Now, this is Paul writing to a pastor, but I just love the way he summarizes all three. Uh, well, both, too. And he adds one element to it. Laleo, the first one, the speaker teach. So here he has one of these broad statements of what counseling or ministry and counseling is all about. Number one, speak, teach. Okay? Sometimes you're dealing with a new Christian, and they've never read these texts. Uh, on going to Burundi last, uh, last month, a uh, pastor called me and said, Alan, could you get something here on, on death? I have a person who's been a Christian for 18 years, and she's just really scared of dying. Just, uh, she just can't even sing. She can't even pray. So I said, well, okay, what, what is it here? She's been a Christian for 18 years, but is it a good 18 years? And she's really sinfully now not believing if she's coming near life. Maybe she has cancer, and uh, that's revealed. Or is she an a early Christian, even though a Christian 18 years and has not been taught anything. She doesn't know 2 Corinthians 15 and the body and the tent and being with the Lord. She doesn't know any of that. He says the latter. So what that is, is the teaching is like, you know, this person is a baby Christian and they need teaching and then parakaleo or admonishment as needed. Do you, do you see that? Teaching is almost always involved. And then wisdom walks out saying, how much do I need to come alongside Call close, be close, speak wisely and lovingly. How much do I have to roll up my sleeve and say, you're in danger, sister, you're in danger, brother, and I'm not going to leave you. There are two warnings. Talk about warning in the middle of that semantic range. Don't lose heart. Don't harden your heart. And when you find yourself in the middle of that range there, Sometimes you want to be Christ in that moment of warning somebody away. Don't lose heart. Jesus will overwhelm you with evidence why you have to have your heart stayed on him. Don't harden your heart. No one will ever be able to say in the last week, uh, in the last final judgment, that God was capricious, evil, uncaring, unloving, unhearing. Never. You'll never have justification to harden your heart. Number five. You doing okay? Question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Question, question. Anything here before we wrap up the last one? You all doing okay here? I'm, I'm intentionally, you know, it, it, you know, laboring on some key things. So it's much easier when we get into uh, models and examples that you'll see that, oh, that's why you do that. Well, yes, that is why I do that. Because some of the, the things that we've established here, seeing how the Bible unpacks what one anothering looks like in the body of Christ. Okay, number five. Are we all set here? We're good? Number five. Second last one. Biblical soul care is based on the sufficiency of the Bible. Now, this is something which I want to prove to you. And over the next couple of weeks, I trust that. Take that, and if you have any questions, that you'll not doubt it later. It's a sufficient to explain the human condition. 
There's a wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, that says, and I don't think I gave this out on a card, so I will read that. Hebrews 12, 4, uh, chapter 4, 12 and 13. The first thing talks about a sufficient scripture. Take care, my brothers, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, here we go, one another, right? Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence. Oh, that was chapter 3. I'm glad I read that anyway. Uh, Chapter 4. 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And... No creature is hidden from the sight, his sight, and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, with whom we will give an account. So you have a picture of a sufficient scripture discerning the thoughts and intents of your heart and the God of the scripture seeing and knowing every thought and intent. Now, if you just had the period there and the chapter ends, that's the scariest passage I think a Christian could read. You're looking over the abyss and going, <gasps> No, not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know the thoughts and the intents of my heart? No, and he sees it all. And yet it doesn't end there. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall. This is the next text, 15 through 16. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect and tempted as we without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. If you only had the first text, you would be scared the living daylights to get up tomorrow and try to follow Christ. Except we not only have a sufficient scripture that unpacks what is going on in our hearts and our minds, but it also presents a sufficient savior. There is a Christ-centered answer, grace-centered answer to everything that tempts your heart astray. Um, We often sit down, my wife and I, with people in counseling and go, okay, what do you need? And they start off with, oh, more, uh, more communication skills. Oh, yes, absolutely, we'll get to that. And some relational understanding. Okay, we'll get to that. But at the end of the day, I want to convince them that the top of the list is grace and mercy. Where grace and mercy is not on the top of the list that you need, then you neither understand grace and mercy, and you don't understand temptation. The heart finds its answer in Jesus, and he deems... uh, glorious to him to use you to give his sufficient grace. Knowing only his spirit can open the eyes of the heart, but you to be able to speak it in wisdom. Our last one. You ready? Deep breath here. Okay. 
and I'll read this one quickly. Biblical soul care is a focused interpersonal ministry of the word. Now, Jay Adams is just absolutely great. And what I loved about his original book is this quote. One another counseling, like preaching, is a ministry of the word. And there's really three parts to the ministry of the word. There's public preaching of the word of God. There's the personal reading at home. And then there's the interpersonal ministry of the word. And that is the one anothering that we're talking about. That's why in the balloons I asked you, are there any ones there, the imperatives that Jesus gives you to do, that you can possibly do without words? Like, are there any? And I, I think I only came up with hospitality. All life is counsel, Psalm 1, 1 through 3. All life is worship, Romans 1, chapter 1. Matthew 7. 24, 25, Jesus said, Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his life on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And we all live in Mississippi. Lord, save me from Mississippi in this life. Did you see that guy on the newscaster who just stopped and prayed? Help these people? Yeah. That, that, that's, that's what you should see. When you, when you see people in whose lives and the storms come and the rains fall, you should be like that weatherman who was obviously a Christian who just stopped and just 10-second prayer, Lord, help these people. Then he continued his broadcast. I, was a, I thought it was a wonderful thing. Right? If he would pray for the people in Mississippi, we have to pray and be near those who live. And the winds blew and the beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And the rock was Christ, and the rock is Christ. Good counsel given in the, meet, in the middle of heat of crisis is best if able to be built on a foundation already established. So you see all three of these work together. All of three things are to be working together. So that in the heat of the moment, many times what you're doing with the scripture is, well, if they're a young Christian, they've never heard it, okay, Let's, let's open this up and compare scriptures. But what if they're a long-time Christian? And like my daughter, all I have to do is say, Jeremiah 17, dig your root closer to the stream. Yes, Dad, I will do that. And I will pray for you, dear. And I hang off the phone. And so times like Jesus saying, remember Lot's wife, three words. He didn't have to teach the story about Lot and his wife. Just saying those words brings that story to the present in such a powerful way that the Jesus reminding them of Lot's wife will remind him of that judgment and of that mercy. That judgment of that mercy. Don't toy with sin. Run to the Savior. Remember Lot's wife. I love also the other three-one, three-word one. Paul writing to Timothy, in the heart and the heat and the terrible struggle of ministry, remember Jesus Christ. What's he meaning there? <laughs> Timothy can't forget him. No, no, that's, that's not what is meant. Okay? Pour into this moment the Jesus that you know. Cling on to him for life because he is your life. So the heart is changed by Jesus and the mind of Christ, oh, that was one of those balloons there. The mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ allows you to live out wisely. Uh, so, 
I'll end with this quote today. Uh, Nate Scroggins is a wonderful pastor up in Indiana at a church. I had him for a class at Master Seminary. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy, and he put this on his website. I just love it, so I've got to tell him someday I, I like this. Biblical soul care is more than a model of simply biblical counseling. It is intentional, intensive discipleship and deep and authentic fellowship. It is something we all should learn to do at the level we're equipped. It is not a new idea. It is living out the one another commands of scripture. It has been practiced since the early church, Acts 2. It can be found in the Puritan community, community of the 16th century and 17th century. It is our mission to restore soul care to the church. Remember my first slide? All the cars heading down Baptist bypass with crash avoidance systems on, right? We don't want to crash into each other. That is not what Jesus calls you to do. His wisdom and love calls you to love like him with wisdom, with grace. So, last picture here. Before you're a Christian, the world, the flesh, the devil, boop, that's it. Even your own self, your own flesh, co-conspirators with the other two to drag you away, away from Christ and keep you away from him. And now we have a wonderful picture of the church, the word, and the spirit uh, being the wonderful gift of grace to each other from a sufficient Savior with a sufficient word. So we'll unpack these things more in the future. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather here, all of us raising our voice in prayer to you, because you have found us. You have opened our hearts to respond to the graciousness. You have given light to our eyes, joy to our hearts, and yet still call us into a fellowship where we are all together uh, lifting up one voice and one prayer. Um, give us the encouragement this day to, to learn of thee, to follow you, that in your kindness you bring us into different stages and chapters in life, but that wonderful picture that you, the God of all comfort, are the ones who graciously, overwhelmingly, uh, freely, and, uh, and with great abundance gives comfort to us that we can have the joy of sharing and giving that comfort, that you call us to give only that which we've received, and you keep giving, that out of the overflow of the grace given to us, we extend grace in words and kindness. Uh, Lord, in the days ahead, give wisdom as we look at these texts and uh, pursue this uh, this subject further, for we thank you and lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf. Org. May God bless you as you seek to follow him in complete obedience to his word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with him deepened.